Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. He will hear their cry and save them. Amen. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a deep sleep. You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Almighty God, the gods of the nations are idols. They are lifeless and powerless. They have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, hands but they cannot save. They call upon their riches, their inventions, their studies, their poles, their fans, their armies. And because you rule all things in heaven and your mercy is great, you allow these people to believe in their delusions, to believe that their studies, their friends, their politics, the things that they have made with their own hands can save them. But you are the only God. You are the living God. And only you have power to save. So we do not put our trust in horses or chariots, in elections or bills, or money or power. We put our trust in you, and we know that you can save with many or few. So we rejoice in your power, in your might, in your wisdom, in your goodness, and we rest now completely in you, our Savior, Jesus, where there is no condemnation, where we are safe from every storm, and where all things must work together for good. So lift us up now by your spirit so that we might truly lift our hearts up to you. We worship you in the name of Jesus, who is alive and sees and hears and saves and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, the only living God, world without end, and amen. amen. Perhaps one of the most central ways Christians are called to stand against the world in our culture is our refusal to trust in ourselves and in particular, trust in our feelings. There's so much emphasis in our world on self, self-esteem, self-care, believe in yourself. And therefore we are urged to trust in ourselves, to obsess with ourselves and with our feelings. How do you feel? How do you really feel? Are you happy, sad, joyful? depressed, miserable, and there are industries built around the analysis of feelings, counselors, seminars, books, charts, online tests, dedicated to exploring who you really are and how you really feel. But you need to realize that this obsession with self and feelings is based on the assumption that you are a god. The obsession with self the obsession with how you are feeling in this moment, how you're feeling about your day, your job, your marriage, your kids, your life, the assumption is that your feelings are these magical divine windows into your soul. 
that they are perfect representations of who you really are and whether you're really doing well and living up to your full potential. But these assumptions are false. You are not a god. You are not a goddess. Your feelings are not perfect windows into your soul or trustworthy oracles of how your life is going. Your feelings, like the rest of you, are fallen and sinful. Your feelings are liars. Your feelings are fickle. Your feelings can enslave you. Your feelings are a dark jungle. And all of this is really good news because you are not that important. You are not God. Your feelings, therefore, are not that important. Your feelings are not your gods. Remember the words that we sing frequently based on Psalm 42. Oh my soul, why are you grieving? Why disquieted in me? Hope in God, your faith retrieving. He will still your comfort be. I again shall laud his grace for the comfort of his face. He will show his help and favor, for he is my God and Savior. What did David do when he was down? He preached to his feelings. He told his feelings to hope in God. He proclaimed to himself that God is his comfort. And instead of focusing on himself and how he felt, he turned to God in praise, proclaiming that God is his only God and Savior. David knew that he could not save himself. His feelings could not save him. Only God could save him. And so he turned away from himself and turned to the one who could. And this is good news. Psalm 85 says, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Father, we confess to you that we have committed the sin of idolatry by worshiping ourselves. We have obsessed over ourselves. We have obsessed over what people think of us. We have obsessed about our feelings, about our looks, and we have looked to ourselves, inside ourselves, to try to find some peace, some joy, some salvation. We confess that this is selfish and self-centered and idolatrous. And the result of this has been greed with our time and resources. We are not glad to share with our children or spouse or friends or neighbors in need. And so we resent the assignments you've given us that require us to serve others and to be selfless. Oh, Father, forgive us and cleanse us from this sin. We are just people made of dust, and we are not that important. Free us from the slavery to ourselves. Grant us your free spirit that allows us to forget ourselves and to love you and our neighbors gladly. Father, we know that if we in the church are not honest with you about our sins, this prayer will be ineffectual and we will not be salt and light in this world as we ought. And so we confess our individual sins to you now. Selah.
We ask all this in the good name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 33:22 says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Because you have confessed your sins and called on the Lord to save, I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning, we're beginning a series through Colossians, so the text this morning is from the first chapter, the first 20 verses. These are the words of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist." And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Our Father in God, we, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the the presence of your spirit, and I pray your spirit would take this word and apply it to our hearts and to our lives so that we might know just exactly how you would have us apply and obey. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Father, please. So as you could tell from what I, the segment of scripture that I just read, together with Ephesians, the epistle to the Colossians is one of those places in Scripture where you have a much higher density of truth than usual. The letter is not more true than other passages of, passages of Scripture. All of Scripture is true. All of Scripture is the truth of God. But there is more truth per square inch here. This is a higher density truth. It's as though the Apostle Paul decided to hand pack it. So everything, everything in here is squeezed tight. There are a lot of interrelations, and it had, it sh the book of Colossians has this in common with the book of Ephesians. Consequently, the letter is one that will repay many visits. Of course, all of Scripture will repay many visits, but this is one of those uh, places where you could 
uh, read through Colossians numerous times, scores of times, and then the next time through, see something, see a connection, or see something you've never seen before in your life, because there's just so much here. So I want, I want to summarize the section that I've read, give an overview, and then uh, drill down into three, uh, on three particular points. The letter is from Paul, the apostle, and Timothy both. But since the pronoun I is used throughout the letter, we may assume that Timothy's role here was that of secretary. So Paul and Timothy both write the, the epistle to the Colossians, but Paul refers to himself in the first person uh, singular throughout. So T- Timothy is presumably functioning as the secretary and is one of the people being used to send the letter, but the letter is from the thought and mind of Paul. In, in verse 2, it says, The saints and faithful brethren there in Colossa are greeted with grace and peace from the Father and the Son. Um, I, want you to, I want you to underline or mentally uh, italicize that phrase, the saints and faithful brethren, because that's going to come up again when we get to chapter 3. When we get, get to chapter 3 and Paul tells us to mortify our members which are on the earth, and in verse 5 he gives a list of them, and our members which are on the earth are pretty ugly things. Um, he is addressing that exhortation, mortify your members which are on the earth, which include things like fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, and so on. He says, put those things to death. And the people he's talking to are saints and faithful brethren. So saints and faithful brethren, and you're going to have to continue to deal with sin, and this letter is going to help you do that. So the saints and faithful brethren are the ones being addressed there in Colossae. And he says, grace and peace to you from the Father and the Son. I've mentioned this before, but I I want to mention it again since we're going through um, this. In all of the epistles in the New Testament, a common formula, the the overwhelming common common formula, is grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And and the question is, where's the Holy Spirit? Why, Why are two persons of the Trinity routinely mentioned at the beginning of these letters and the Holy Spirit is not mentioned at the beginning of these letters. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm following Jonathan Edwards in this. I believe it's because the Holy Spirit is the grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. The, the grace and peace of God proceed from the Father and the Son, and grace and peace come to you from the Father and the Son at the beginning of all these letters. Paul has been, had been constantly grateful for the Colossians, verse 3. Ever since he heard of their faith in God and love for the saints, verse 4. And we can tell right away that the church at Colossae was not planted by Paul because he says he was grateful for them from the very first moment he heard about them. So uh, he heard about the church and he's been grateful from that moment on. That faith and love that the Colossians had sprang from their hope that was laid up in heaven, which they had heard about through the gospel, verse 5. And that gospel among the Colossians and everywhere else is fruitful from the beginning. Verse 6, when the gospel comes into someone's life, it's fruitful from the get-go. The gospel is not fruitless if the gospel is heard in faith. If it is fruitless, if it's not bearing fruit, then someone's not listening with faith. Someone's not hearing with faith. It's not possible to hear the gospel in evangelical faith and not have it start to show traces of its presence right away. Paul says the gospel was fruitful from the beginning, from the very start. Verse 6, they learned all this 
from Epaphras, a faithful minister, verse 7, who had reported their love back to Paul, verse 8. So Paul didn't plant the church there. Epaphras did. And Epaphras was the one who told Paul about how well they were doing. Now, since the very first day that Paul had heard of their beginning with Christ, he constantly prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, verse 9. A little bit later, Christ is said to be the one in whom all fullness dwells, and Paul here is asking that the Colossians be filled with, all, uh, with, with knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This echoes something in Ephesians. He, Paul is praying that they would, in effect, grasp the ungraspable, be, uh, be filled with that which is infinite. Uh, to know the unknowable, to, to, to touch infinity. And of course, in ourselves, in our own persons, we can't do anything of the kind. And we're always going to be finite, and God's always going to be infinite. There's always going to be further up and further in. And yet, this is how we are to pray. From the moment I heard that you all were Christians, I've been praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And this is so that they might walk in a manner that was fruitful and pleasing to God. Verse 10. Is your life fruitful and pleasing to God? This would happen as they were strengthened by his power in all patient joy. Verse 11, giving thanks to the Father who included them in his inheritance. Verse 12, God had taken them out of the, the kingdom of darkness. He had taken them, he delivered them from the power of darkness, verse 13, and he had translated them into his kingdom, and they had redemption through the blood of his son, which is the forgiveness of sin, verse 14. So God had taken them from one place and taken them to another. This son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is particularly exalted in this book. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, verse 15. This son is the almighty creator of all things. They were created, it says, by him and for him. Why was everything made? It, well, it was made for Jesus. And who made it? Well, Jesus. Jesus made it. The Lord Christ made it, and he made it for himself, verse 16. He's prior to all things, and in him all things hang together, verse 17. Everything integrates in Christ. Everything ties together in Christ. Apart from Christ, nothing makes sense. Apart from Christ, nothing coheres, nothing hangs together. It all comes together in Christ. He is the head of the church, and he is the arche, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent one, verse 18. It pleased the Father that all fullness should reside in the Son, Verse 19, and then having made peace through the cross, it was the Father's intention to reconcile everything in heaven and on earth through that one magnificent sacrifice. Verse 20, and as I said at the beginning, there is a lot there. You could write books on what's there. It's, uh, and you might say, well, could, shouldn't you spend one week on a verse, you know, and spend 20 weeks going through it. Well, you could, you could, and we could, we could go even slower than that. But of course, if you go start, if you get too slow, it becomes extraordinarily topical because, because by the time you get to verse 20 and you want to tie it back to verse one, that was everybody listening to it was back in junior high. Uh, there, the Bible, the Bible is given to us in, in ways that make us aware of its extraordinary 
potency to work in us, even, even if we don't grasp everything as we pass through. Uh, so what I want to do is give you a taste of everything that's here, an awareness of how, how dense the, this thicket of truth is, so that you might come back and reread and reread and reread. Now, I, I want to give you a little bit of background on the book. For, for many reasons, uh, the book of Colossians should be considered as the twin sister of the book of Ephesians. It's Ephesians' twin sister. These two books were written about the same time, which was around 62 AD. So they're both written about 62 AD, and they were written during Paul's Roman imprisonment, the one that ended at the book of Acts, the one he's in at the end of the book of Acts. There's some, there are some indications that Paul was released at some point. He went perhaps as far as Spain, some people say even as far as uh, England. It was, it was his, di his desire to get to the westernmost uh, part of the empire, which would have been, uh, would have been England, but uh, he had a desire to go to Spain. So the, as people have reconstructed Paul's history, he's released after uh, his imprisonment in Rome at the end of Acts. He goes farther west. We don't have, don't have any real records of that. He's arrested again later. There's a second Roman imprisonment where he was beheaded. Now, this, is, uh, this letter is written in the first Roman imprisonment. You remember that we go all the way through the book of Acts. Paul appeals to Caesar. He's taken to Rome. He, his conditions are pretty good. He's under house arrest. He's not in a dungeon somewhere. He's under house arrest. He can talk to the Jewish leaders there in Rome and, and present the gospel uh, to them. He is in pretty good, uh, pretty good conditions. And during that time, he writes the book of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. All three of these letters were apparently delivered by Tychicus in Ephesians 6.21 and Colossians 4.7, and Onesimus, Colossians 4.9. Onesimus also was the one who delivered the book of Philemon, because you recall, Onesimus had been a a slave who had apparently stolen something from his master, Philemon. Philemon was a Christian. Onesimus was not. Onesimus stole something and ran off. He encountered Paul, presumably there in Rome, and was led to Christ by Paul. Paul returns, Philem uh, returns Onesimus to Philemon, and with a not-so-subtle hint that Paul would like Onesimus to be given his freedom. He, he says, look, uh, Philemon, you owe me a lot, but I'm not going to mention it, you know. <laughs> but just saying, you know, just saying. It sure would be nice if Onesimus uh, uh, could be here with me, but I'm not going to press the point, but you owe me a lot. And, uh, and we know from extra-biblical history, actually, a very, early, a very early bishop in Ephesus, which is right, uh, right here, part of this mix, uh, was named Onesimus. And there, there's a set of early... Um, uh, there's a set of um, indications that the Onesimus, who was the bishop of Ephesus, was in fact the Onesimus who, was, um, who was, had been Philemon's slave. So Onesimus returns the, it takes the letter of Philemon. Onesimus takes the letter of Colossians. Tychicus takes the letter of Ephesians and Colossians. Put that together, uh, and those, uh, those men were involved in delivering those three letters. Philemon probably lived in Colossa or in the neighborhood of Colossa. 
Now that town, Colossa, is located about 100 miles east of Ephesus and in modern Turkey. If you imagine a Mediterranean map, you have the famous boot, Italy, then Greece, then uh, Turkey. Turkey at that time was a Roman province, Asia Minor. Ephesus was on the coast, and Colossa was about 100 miles inland, east of that. The church at Colossa had been founded about 10 years earlier. So Paul's writing this around 62 AD. Colossa, the church at Colossa was founded about 10 years earlier, but not directly by Paul. When Paul had been teaching for that three-year stretch in Ephesus, and that was between 52 and 55, you remember that he had run into trouble in the synagogue, and he wound up renting a lecture hall, uh, the Hall of Tyrannus, and what a school teacher that guy must have been to have a name like that. The, where, shall we where shall we teach everyone? Well, let's rent Tyrant's Hall. So, so they rented Tyrant's Hall, and Paul taught daily there for three years. And a Colossian native named Epaphras had heard Paul in Ephesus there at that time, was converted, and returned to Colossa in order to plant the church. And there's a reference there in verse 7. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. So we hear, see here that Epaphras is not just a Colossian uh, church member, not just an, uh, an individual Christian there, but he's a minister of Christ, he's a fellow servant of Paul's, and he was the one responsible for planting the church in Colossa. So that's the background on the letter. There are three great things that I want to take away from this section of the first chapter, three things that I think need to be emphasized, three things that I think we need to hang on to. The first is that Christ is the creator. Christ is our creator. If something exists, then that something was created by Christ. He is the executive of God's power. He is God's power, which is to say he is God. Consider verse 16 again. For by him were all things created. For by him, that's by Jesus, by Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. So Jesus, now let, let me stop for a minute to explain that. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth did not create everything because Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist yet. Uh, the incarnation had not yet happened. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who was incarnated as Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who created all things. He is the executive of God's power. We're taught, that we're taught this many times in the New Testament. In John 1.3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, John tells us, if it, is, if it is created, then Christ created it. If it is created, then he is the one who did it. Then in Hebrews 1, 2, it says, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. If something is, then Christ made it. But I want you to notice something. When it says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, so the, it's the Father who has spoken to us by the Son. And it is the Father who has appointed the Son heir of all things. 
and it is the Father who made the worlds, and it says, by whom also he made the worlds. This is what I mean when I say Christ is the agent of the Father's creating. When the Father wants something done, the Son does it. When the Father wills for something to be done, like let there be light, the Son does it. Christ creates the light. But Christ creates the light, doing his Father's will. When the Father wants to redeem a people for his own name's sake, out of the fallen sinful human race, the Father wills it, the Son accomplishes it. The Son is the executive of God's power. God made the world. Christ is God. And Christ is the power of God who made the world. So, we do not affirm the doctrine of creation as some sort of generic truth. The fact that the creation account is given to us in Genesis must not prevent us from seeing that doctrine as an explicit Christian doctrine. You must, when you, when you look at the created order, you must see Christ in it. Christ is not just in uh, the history of our redemption. Christ is not just from 2,000 years ago on down. Christ is the one who spoke the cosmos into existence. Christ is the creator of galaxies. Christ is the creator of every atom that is. If it is a contingent made thing, then Christ made it. And of course, this means that Christ is not included. Christ is not a created being. Christ is not the first of all God's creation as the, Ar the ancient Aryans uh, falsely taught. They said they wanted to honor Christ, and they wanted to say Christ is the, most, is the most powerful and the most beautiful of all God's creation, and God created him first. Well, no. Christ is the creator. Christ is the everlasting God. So, we must see the doctrine of creation as an explicit Christian doctrine. The oceans and rivers and mountains and forests were created by the Son of God, and they were created for the Son of God. It all exists for the sake of Jesus Christ. All of it is because Jesus is worthy. All of it is because Christ is worthy. All of it was redeemed because Christ is worthy. So Christ is the creator. Secondly, God doesn't just create as the deists would have it. The deists want to say that, that God created everything. He sort of made the clock and he wound the clock up and he put it on the shelf and walked away. No, the Bible teaches that God is the creator and the providential sustainer of everything that exists. Not only did Christ speak into existence every atom that exists, but, uh, that came into existence, but Christ continues to hold every atom together. He is the, he is the one in whom, as we're going to see in just a little bit, he is the one in whom all things cohere. He is the one in whom all things consist. He is the one that holds everything together. Now, this is what we mean when we say Christ is the arche in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the arche, the arche, the firstborn from the dead. Now, there's, there are depths there, and I, want, uh, I don't want you to, uh, well, let me just give you an illustration. I remember years and years ago when I was, I was taking a physics class, and, um, and this physics class, you, you know, of course, that at the center of every atom are a cluster of protons, and protons all have a positive charge, and there are neutrons that have no charge. There's neutrons, no charge, protons, positive charge. You also know, if you've ever tried to push the wrong ends of a magnet together, that positive charges do what? They repel. 
So the question is, why are all these protons, each with a positive charge, clustered together in the nucleus, in the nucleus of an atom? What's holding them together? It's not the neutrons, because they're, they don't have, they're not doing anything. You've got all these positively, positively charged protons clustered together, packed together. Our instructor informed us that the thing that's holding them all together is called the strong force. <laughs> oh, the lights come on. Oh. <laughs> modern, modern scientists have, um, unbelieving scientists, I should say, modern scientists have absolutely confused the difference, the distinction between description and explanation. A description is not an explanation. If you just describe something for me, it's, you've not explained anything. Right? You've not explained anything. So if, um, if I drop this, what makes it go down? Well, you've been to school. Gravity makes it go down. What's gravity? Things going down. <laughs> Description is not explanation. I've got, I've got a theory for you. Here's a very scientific theory. Whenever you let go of a watch, you have a watch, there's a watch fairy, an invisible watch fairy that's right next to it, watching over the watch. And when you let go of it, the watch will grab it and pull it toward the nearest large object at 9.8 meters per second squared. And if I test my theory, it is confirmed. <laughs> you say, you didn't prove the existence of fairies. Well, you didn't prove the existence of gravity either. It's just what everything, Christ holds everything together. Why do things fall down? Everything coheres. Why do you not float off? Why do you not just disappear into a poof of nothing? Because Christ is holding you together. Christ is the one who created you, and Christ is the one, is the reason why you continue to remain a creature. It's the word of Christ that created you, and it's the word of Christ that sustains you. And this is um, Christ as the RK in verse 18. It's translated as beginning, but there's much more to this than what a stopwatch measures. The word arche is used in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, but it's the word that's in the beginning. He is God himself, and he is with God. John does not say, in the beginning, things started. It's not simply saying, in the beginning, there was a beginning, or in the beginning, the stopwatch got clicked. No, he says in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And in Colossians 2.15, Christ spoils the principalities, arche, and there's the same word there. Christ spoils the principalities, arche, which refers to spiritual rulers. So arche en encompasses not just the start, but also the rule over, the sovereignty, the integration point. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. So Christ is the ultimate ruler. Christ is the, the ultimate point of integration. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is the ultimate arche. He is the final and ultimate point of integration. Nothing can exist without the word of Christ. Nothing could come into existence apart from the word of Christ, and nothing can remain in existence apart from the sustaining word of Christ. And Paul says this, go, dives a little more explicitly into this in verse 15. He says he's the firstborn of all creation, or you could render it firstborn over all creation. He is the heir of all things. He's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn is the one who inherits. But this is echoed a moment later in the phrase firstborn from the dead. And so we see the firstborn of all creation does not mean 
firstborn creature. So when, when Christ is called the firstborn, it's not saying he was born first. It's not saying that he was, uh, there was a time when Christ was not, and then he came into existence. Firstborn does not mean, in this sense, born first. Firstborn has to do with his status as the heir of all things. It has to do with his rule over all things. But what, uh, in Psalm 2, it says, God says to the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today I've begotten you. And what the Arians, the Arians were the, the ancient heretics who denied that Jesus was God. And they said, well, see, God the Father says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Today, yesterday you didn't exist, and today you have been begotten. See, today you have been begotten. This totally misconstrues what um, Scripture is saying, because in Acts 13, where that passage is quoted, starting Acts 13, 32. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again from the dead, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is where the father says, you are my son, today I've begotten thee. And Paul is making uh, that same point when he says here in Colossians 1 that he's the firstborn from the dead. So when, and, and then in, in uh, Psalm 2, when it says, you are my son, today I've begotten thee, what is the result of the resurrection of Christ in the second Psalm? It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth your possession. So Christ is the heir of all things because he's been raised from the dead. And in Romans 1.4, God declares, Jesus was declared, it says in Romans 1, 4, he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And this, I think, helps us explain why when in the gospels, uh, when demons or different people would testify to who Jesus was, well, you're the son of God. And Jesus would tell them to be quiet about, stop it, don't say anything more about that. I think Jesus was wanting that truth to wait until the father declared it. When the father declared it, by raising him from the dead, we're, we're now free to tell everybody. Not only are we free to tell everybody, we're commanded to tell everybody because the Father has spoken. The Father spoke by raising Jesus from the dead. You are my son. You're the firstborn from the dead. You are the firstborn, the heir of all creation, and you have been ushered into that status because you have come back from the dead. At, at, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So Jesus is the Lord of the new creation, and his resurrection was the first appearance of that new creation. Imagine a decrepit old mansion, a huge mansion, but it is seedy, everything's falling apart, and the you know, full of trash and homeless people, and it's just a big mess. Used to be something, but now it's not something, but lots of people are living there. Lots of homeless bums are living there, and God decides to remodel it. And God decides to remodel it while everybody's still living in it. That's what the gospel is all about. This, this world is that ramshackle mansion. All the unbelievers are all the homeless people living in this ramshackle mansion. And Jesus came down to earth, suffered, lived a perfect life, suffered, bled, died, was buried, rose again from the dead. And that moment where he rose again from the dead was the moment when the new creation invaded the old creation. 
That was the harbinger of the new creation. The new heavens and the new earth started right there 2,000 years ago. And as the gospel is preached and people are quickened and brought into new life by that gospel, the new, the, the new creation is spreading throughout the old creation. And there are sometimes tensions. Sometimes the old inhabitants like the, old, the ramshackle way it was. They don't like, they're nervous about what might come about in this, uh, in this reconstruction, this extreme remodel project. But Christ says, never mind. Preach the gospel to every creature. So Jesus by coming back from the dead, is established as the heir, as the arche, as the ruler, as the king. He's the Lord of all things. And so that's why the fundamental Christian confession is simply this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And you either accept that or reject it. You either accept it and are saved, or you reject it and are lost. You accept it, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven, or you reject it, it's either yes or no, it's either yes, I will accept it, or no, I will not, and if you say no, then you're going to be taken down, unless God's mercy is shown to you six months from now or six years from now. God's mercy has uh, chased down many a sinner before this point. So the third thing that we should take from this passage is this. Christ is the cosmic reconciler. Christ is the cosmic reconciliation. He, Paul says something very striking in verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Colossians 1.20. The death of Christ on the cross did not just result in our forgiveness and our redemption although it includes that. We see that in verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Those who need their sins forgiven need to come to God through the blood of Christ. Those who are in rebellion against God need to come to God through Christ. Those who need redemption, those who need forgiveness, those who need cleansing, those who need their stony, rebellious heart shattered need to do it through the cross. And so... And so we can see that, that evangelical Christians have properly emphasized down through the years that the estrangement between our unholy selves and a holy God is accomplished in this way. Individual sinners are forgiven in this way. But notice that Paul is talking about something much grander. He's talking about a much grander reconciliation accomplished through the cross than simply the reconciliation between God and a sinner. Here in verse 20, the reconciliation is between all things and himself. So the rebellion of man, the sin of man, caused more cracks to appear than the chasm between God and man. There are more, there are more things dislocated than simply what happened to us. There are some things that need to be dealt with in heaven. Uh, um, here the reconciliation is between all things and himself, whether in heaven or on earth. And the allness of the all things includes things in heaven as well as on earth. Everything is to be put back together. Everything is to be restored. Everything is to be made better than new. Now, some might say, uh, now we know that, that hell is eternal. We know that, that the lake of fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. So we know that a number of the angels 
uh, are condemned and, and are lost. The, the lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. But we also know that there are principalities and powers. Paul says um, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. There are apparently celestial beings or entities that are part of this mix that need to be included somehow in this reconciliation of all things. So do not think of heaven as a place that is utterly distant. Now, although the scriptures do speak of the heaven of heavens, scriptures do speak of the highest heaven, and so that is a biblical picture. That is part of the picture. That is one of the metaphors we should use as we think about heaven. But we should also think, if we want to think biblically, we should also think of heaven as something that is near but hidden from us. Near but hidden. There are multiple places where we're told, for example, that the heavens opened. We see this at the baptism of Jesus in Mark 1.10. It says the heavens opened. I mean, they're right there. The, the heavens opened and the dove came down and alighted on Jesus. Jesus told Nathaniel that he would see the heavens open in John 1.51. Peter saw this in his vision of the sheet with the unclean animals in it. That's in Acts 10.11. Peter saw heaven opened and the sheet was lowered. And this is what Stephen saw at his martyrdom in Acts 7.56. So Stephen, standing on earth, saw Jesus standing in heaven. Heavens opened and and Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen wasn't looking at Jesus through a telescope. It wasn't this distant, tiny figure. Heaven is near, and it's ordinarily hidden. Heaven is near, ordinarily hidden. And so this is the revelation that John saw in, in Revelation 4.1. Heaven opened up. One of the things that we, in, in the creation account, we have the sun and the moon. They're, they're twinned. They're, they're part of a set. You have sea and dry land. It's part of a set. You have male and female, part of a set. You have heaven and earth. It's part of a set. But because of our sin and our rebellion, we have brought about a divorce. Some doors have slammed shut. Some windows have been uh, boarded up. And there's been, been a divorce between heaven and earth. But in the gospel, that is overcome. In the gospel, you should no longer think of heaven as this long, far away, distant place. Do not say, in Deuteronomy 30, do not say, who will go up into heaven to get Christ for us? Romans 10, 6, Paul, Paul interprets Deuteronomy 30 in Romans 10 um, as saying that th this word that we're talking about is Christ. It's the gospel. And Paul says, no, heaven is nearby because Christ is being preached. And whenever Christ is preached, he is necessarily nearby. Christ is brought near in the gospel. Don't say, who's going to go across all those light years? Who's going to go into the heaven of heavens to get Christ and to bring him down? No, he came down. He came down. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was died, crucified on the cross. He was buried. He rose again from the dead, was established as the, uh, the first of the new order, the first cornerstone in the great glorious building that was coming. And we were commissioned to go tell everybody about it. We were commissioned to go preach it. Now, what does Paul say about this, the closeness of Christ? Where's Christ? He's at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And where is heaven? It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. 
It's here in the table. It's here in the word. It's in the message. So uh, Paul says in Romans 10, 8, what saith it? The word is nigh thee, near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. Now, if you've been singing the hymns, if you don't believe in Jesus and you've been singing the hymns, it's in your mouth anyway. That's why there's a bitter taste, right? The bitter taste because you're singing words you don't believe. You're saying words you, if you said, said or sang the creed this morning and your heart's not in it, the word's in your mouth, but not in your heart yet. The word is near. The word is near and God's whole intention in the gospel is to bring it near and to keep it near. And that is why the word of faith sees and apprehends a present Christ. We are not worshiping a distant Christ. We are worshiping, as Christians, a present Christ. It's not a distant Christ in a distant heaven. It is a present Christ in a present heaven, in a present spirit, in a present gospel, and a present neighbor, a present brother, a present sister. All of that is near you. It's right here. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to go anywhere. The only, the only place you have to go is away from your sin away from self, away from your own idolatries, away, turn away from sin and turn to Christ. And when you find out, when, you, when, you, when you're turning to Christ, you're turning to Christ in such a way that you are finding out that you don't have to go, you turn away from your sin and you're going to Christ, you don't have to go 100 miles. You don't have to go 10 miles. You turn away from your sin and he's right there. He's present. What saith it? The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. So here's the question for you today. Is it? Is it in your mouth but not in your heart? Is it in your mouth and your heart? If it's in your mouth and in your heart, then he's here. He is present. And we see that. We apprehend that by faith. Our Father and God, we thank you for the kindness that you've shown to us by giving us your gospel. I pray that as we think about these things, as we meditate on them, you would show us what it all means, the depth of what it means. I pray that you would manifest your wisdom, shed it abroad in our hearts, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It is entirely possible to grow up in this church and a covenant family to hear the gospel over and over again, to know the gospel, be able to explain the gospel, and yet still not love the gospel. It's possible to know about God, to know about Jesus, to know about the Bible, and yet it is still possible to not love this God, to not love this Jesus, to not love his word. My point is not primarily an emotional one. We've been trained to think of love as primarily as an, as an emotion, but biblically speaking, love is simply obedience to God from the heart. God commands us to love him and so this is not a, just a feeling that we gin up. It is a commitment and a desire to trust and obey God from the bottom of our being with all that we are. But there's an important sense in which even this deep commitment, this desire, this trust and obedience cannot be mustered up by us. God commands us to love him, and yet this is a command we cannot obey unless he gives us the obedience. In the same way, we are commanded to believe in Christ, crucified for our sins. But the Bible teaches that we cannot believe unless God gives us the faith to believe. And so we cannot love him unless he gives us that love. So where does that leave us? 
How can we do what God has commanded if we are dependent on God for the ability to obey? The answer is actually found in this crux, in this impossibility of pleasing God. It is the realization that we are not good, that we cannot please God, that we are rebels and traitors and filthy sinners all who deserve God's wrath and judgment. It is the desperation, the terror, the horror of sin and death that drives us to the foot of the cross, to Jesus, calling on him to save us. And we find that he is there. He is there, crucified for sinners. He is there as the sin bearer. He is there as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this is the invitation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You are not good. You cannot stop sinning. You can never make up for all the evil you have done. But if you cry out, if you admit that you cannot make yourself clean or good, if you call on the name of the Lord, he will stand in your place. He will bear your sin instead of you. He will wash you clean. He will make you new. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus, our sin bearer. Thank you that he stood in our place to take away our sins. Thank you that in him you are making us and all things new. And so we praise you and we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As Pastor Wilson was talking about how near heaven is, I was reminded of the story in 2 Kings where Elisha and his servant are in a city that's been surrounded by the Syrian army. And Elisha just stands there just sort of grinning. And the servant is getting really nervous and afraid because there's armies. And Elisha says, don't worry about it. There's more with us than with them. And prays and asks the Lord to open the servant's eyes. And the servant's eyes are opened and suddenly there behind them, right there, are myriads and myriads of angels standing. And more are with us than are with them. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. So whatever it is that you have in front of you today, this afternoon, tomorrow, this week, whatever it is you're facing, greater is he who is in you. Heaven is with you. If you have Christ with you, then you have heaven with you. You have all of his wisdom, all of his power, all of his glory is there with you to face whatever you need to face. So go now with the blessing of the firstborn, the arche, the one who is and will be. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen.